The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome, boys and girls, back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, right across from me is the one, the only, the hairiest beast of them all, the scariest beast of them all, Tammy, the underwear on her head, Underwood, saying, Tam. I hate you. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> you are starting with me already, and I want people to know it's not even 7 a.m. You know what Saturday. you're starting with? Not talking into your fucking mic. That's what you're starting with. I am with. talking into my mic. Do you have them turned up? Yes. Okay, well, I'm in my mic. Fine. 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 I'll turn you up higher then. Fine. Christ. About time people turn me up. No. No. <laughs> no, it isn't. We should be having you in a fucking cage. Like an animal. I hate you. Anyways, so this... Remember when I did the... um, We did the Star Rock murders? Yeah, of I course. I told you there are some people that are going to come up again in the next case I was going to do. Please tell me it's a cook that's making breakfast. I wish somebody would make us breakfast because right now. He's a starved rock, and I'm a, I'm a starved Scott. So, yeah, same, same. <laughs> starved rock, starved Scott. No. This is, um, this is like, there's a couple people in in this whole, this case that were involved in that case as well. Cool. Just an FYI, your yeah. volume right now is perfect. So, if you keep talking exactly like you're at, you okay. are right now. Okay. Okay. I will try. Hard. I will try my best. But anyways, but this case happened in 1945-46. And the other one happened in 1960, remember? Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. I'm, okay, so I'm hip this to is, the game. This is even before. And remember what is so significant about that case is his was just a couple of... Uh, Chester Weger's case was just a couple of years before they did the Miranda rights and the disclosing the disclosing of anything uh, that could, like, exonerate your, the defendant. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. So, yeah, there's all that. And... So this is the case of William George Hirons. He was known as the Lipstick Killer. And so those who have had interactions with the justice system know it can, at times, lean more toward injustice. However, there was a time in American history when the legal system didn't seem to have any justice at all. Damn um, those bastards. They must have all been from Vancouver, Washington. <laughs> just saying, just saying. I'm telling you, that's why Vancouver is. No. But um, <laughs> a time when the authorities could accuse someone of committing a crime and the accused really didn't have any rights or recourse to ensure they received a fair trial. There was even a time in recent history when the authorities could do anything they wanted to the accused under the guise of interrogation. <laughs> And that may just be the issue with the case I'm featuring today. Um, in the autumn of 1946, the state attorney for Cook County and the Chicago Police Department announced they had finally closed the books on three murder investigations that had plagued them for the better part of a year. In one incident, the murderer left behind a message for the authorities. It was written in lipstick on the victim's wall, so the media dubbed him the lipstick killer. Because he felt pretty. I like to feel pretty, too. I know you do. Yes, I do. Did I ever tell you that I like to uh, dip my balls in the glitter? I was waiting for this joke to come up on the air. Yeah, pretty nuts, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to say to you right now. So, according (laughs) to the reports... 17-year-old, a 17-year-old student by the name of William George Hirons, uh, spelled H-E-I-R-E-N-S, but it's pronounced Hirons, 
um, law enforcement officials arrested him on an unrelated charge almost two months before he confessed to murdering two women and abducting, murdering, and dismembering a six-year-old girl. Damn. Now, I will get into something a little later, but I think you might be thinking the same thing I do when I go over these cases. So he can, his confession led to headlines such as the werewolf was in chains. Well, and hold on, hold on, because I'm not even convinced anymore that, that anybody during that time period is guilty because of exactly what you said. Is that at the time, you know, okay, if I'm beating the shit out of somebody, they're going to tell me whatever I want them to tell me, whether it's true, true or that, not. True Just... So that the beatings stop, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, or you know if they're being tortured in some way. Sure. So I I don't really la- lend any validity <laughs> to the claims that he's the killer right, right off the bat because of the time era. Exactly. Of the and I actually learned that you know fucking doing this podcast. Oh, exactly. Be, used to be you mentioned a kid as a fuck that guy, kill him, cut mm-hmm. his nuts off, ram him with a hot poker up his butt, and now I sat there and go, eh, maybe you didn't do it. If he did, he's a fucking piece of shit. But, right. you know, I don't, well, I guess we're going to find out. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. You well, continue. yeah, I was going to say, keep it shut until I'm done, because this is pretty, like, pretty bizarre and political. So, however, what the papers didn't report, the authorities brutalized William and questioned him after administering sodium pentothal without warrant or consent. He was interrogated under harsh conditions for approximately six days and only gave his confession after he was told he would be spared from the death penalty. William later said, I confess to live. You know. Um, exactly what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Now, as we saw with the Chester Weaker case, there are two sides to this argument. There are some who adamantly believe justice was, justice was served the day William Hirons was taken into custody. In fact, Lucy Freeman talks about this side of the argument in her book, Before I Kill More. She wrote, to explain the method in Bill's killings, two things must be considered. What psychiatrists call the predisposition toward the deed and the precipitating factor. If the foundation of a life is one of excessive fear and anger, which then pervades the whole life, a person may be said to have a predisposition towards murder. And the precipitating factor is a straw that broke Bill's psychic back. Yeah, psychic back, allowing the anger to erupt into violence. I think she meant psych, you know, his psychology. Yeah, his psyche back. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, but yeah, no. I, but I'm, this was I'm, I'm, written a long time ago, so. Right, right. Well, I'm glad that you clarified that because we yeah. have some listeners. I was psychic. What does he read a crystal ball? Is he yeah. telling fortunes with tarot cards? No, no, not the, not the same kind of psychic. Yeah, jackass. I was going to say people need to realize that these books were written right after his crime, so like in the early fifties. Sorry, I had to drink some coffee. I'm dying. Yeah, take that coffee. Shut Get up. Get that caffeine in your mouth. Swirl it around. Shut up. Yeah, take the Why hot... do you make even drinking coffee sound dirty? I don't know. I don't know why. Take that creamy caffeinated beverage. That's all Smell, warm. It tastes like coconut. Yeah, take those nuts in your mouth. I hate you. <laughs> On the other side I of the so argument, up. I know, which clearly thinks William was just a scape- scapegoat, the authorities used to cover up their their inadequate investigation and failed manhunt. Dolores Kennedy talked about that in her book, Bill Hirons, His Day in Court. She said he was convicted by a sensation-seeking press because he had no legal protection from media excesses. There was to be no trial for Bill Hirons, no testing of state's evidence, no introduction of state's witnesses. 
In this presentation, I'm going to do my best to give you an objective view of the events that surrounded this case, and I'll let you decide which side of the fence you land on when it's over. Now, Chicago was a city in conflict. Um, the year was 1946. Mussolini and Hitler were no longer alive. Japan had suffered an atomic attack, and World War II had ended. Every city in the United States was tired of the violence and had, that had swept the world. So peace had finally come, but it came with a vengeance. However, that didn't seem to be the case in Chicago. Immediately following the war, the crime rate, crime rate in Chicago... I can't wait till I get my bottom plate next week. The crime rate in Chicago skyrocketed. The escalation was attributed to the unemployment crisis facing soldiers who were returning for war, and the influx of crime frustrated the citizens of Chicago. They feared their city would become a war zone like it had during the Prohibition, when the streets weren't ruled by law enforcement, but Al Capone himself. You What's know, wrong with that? Back in the good old days. And you take away booze from people, you know, Jesus Dude, Christ. Dude, take away my booze. I will fight you. That's me, man. Like, if somebody came in here and said, you can't have booze, I'm clearing out your entire bar. I'd be like, <laughs> nice try, asshole. Good thing I have family in the woods. <laughs> I'd be like, um, some people are going to die because I've got, you know, I'll start shooting. Like, seriously. You taking my goddamn booze? Fuck you guys. Oh, totally. Totally. Now, it's American. Lucy Freeman talked about that time when she said Chicago re remained in part after the war a city in conflict, caught between the wish to be sophisticated and yet remain a pioneer town. It possessed some of the virtues of the largest city and some of its vices, as well as some of the virtues of a village and some of its vices. Now, needless to say, the public was growing increasingly upset with law enforcement's inability to stem the criminal flow. This made city officials and politicians nervous, none more so than John C. Pendergast, Prendergast, excuse me, the commissioner of the Chicago Police Department. So he made the public aware that he had a solution for the problem, arrests, and lots of them. Man, no, booze and porn. Dude, I'm telling you. No, seriously, like during economic downturns, mm -hmm. there's certain things that elevate as far as sales, booze being one of them, mm -hmm. porn, sex. In general, we're talking like things like strip clubs or, you know, fucking, uh, uh, I don't know, like uh, sex clubs and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and cigarettes. And it's because people want to medicate. They want to they, they forget of all the bullshit yeah. that's going on with them at the moment. You know, but no, what do they do? Let's take away booze from people. Let's make sex illegal. Whatever the fuck they want to do is just stupid. Yeah, true. True. Day, God, the day they make sex illegal, I'll be on death row. <laughs> Just that, saying. <laughs> that would be me. I will. I, I, I'm that disruptive kid in the class, man. I will be fucking in public. Like, I will put my tailgate down. I'll be like, I'm banging. <laughs> I don't care. Then they arrest me. Let's fight. I don't care. You're, <laughs> you're going to fight me with a hard on and my dick hanging out. Yeah, that's right. Which is how Vancouver P PD finds you anyways, but that's okay. <laughs> no, Vancouver PD finds me doing things like I'm sitting in a Starbucks drinking coffee. <laughs> going, huh, I'm going to get some work done. All right. This is this is good. Good times. Good times. And all of a sudden, I'm being tased. He was resisting arrest. <laughs> I didn't even see you come in. It's like, I didn't even know you guys were... There, that you're you're using your your laptop as a dangerous weapon. I'm not even watching porn, okay? <laughs> I'm just trying to do some reports, you know, and uh, and and do some work and stop resisting. Then get yeah. kicked in the nuts fifty times. <laughs> they drink my coffee. You know what? I need to start dating a Vancouver police officer just to deal with you. We well, see, and after all that, they look at me. Okay, we're gonna let you off with a warning this time. 
Just don't park, you know, quite so square in your parking spot. <laughs> Thanks for the warning. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sitting there bleeding. No coffee in me either because they done drank it. <laughs> Freaking cops, man. I, like I said, I like all cops. I, I, I support law enforcement. Just Vancouver PD can fuck right off. Yeah, if they got rid of Vancouver and just kept it Clark County, you'd be all right. <laughs> Seriously, I've had run-ins with the state police in Washington. Mm-hmm. They're awesome. Awesome. Dude, I've had one run-in with a state police officer, state trooper in Washington, and he was amazingly funny. Yeah, he was so cool. Yeah, the state troopers here are great. The sheriff's department for Clark County, fantastic. Yeah. I've talked to them. Fantastic. Vancouver cops? Yeah, not so much. Not so much. Dude, I even was joking around. By the time I got done in court that one time after I got a ticket from a Washington state trooper on my way to Seattle, I went to court in Vancouver, and me and the judge were calling each other homies. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, that's cool, Holmes. And he goes, what? I go, I'm so sorry. He goes, that's cool. He goes, I, I, he goes, I prefer the laid back attitude. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but yeah, he was awesome. Hmm. So even with their quote solution before them, the authorities weren't prepared for what was headed their way in the form of crime on the streets. Virgil Peterson, the Chicago Police Department Crime Commissioner Director, remember we talked about him? He was the one that one of the husbands called. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because he was friends with Virgil Peterson. Right. Okay. Which tells you pretty much how high up that guy was in society anyways if he was friends with the, you know, the crime commissioner director who's like taking down mobsters, right? They needed Batman on commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred <laughs> Alfred knows everything <laughs> Put up the bat signal So now he yes, immediately they put, up for me. Huh? they put up the Scott signal for me And then I come right to their door And I'm going on He immediately went on the defensive hey, By smugly some, saying Some of the women at the retirement home need loving Just saying By smugly saying We've been warning the public for four years That there would be crime a crime wave after the war. There's been one after every war, right? So it's kind of justifying everything. However, Dolores Kennedy put numbers numbers on the public's perspective. Peterson placed the responsibility on a letdown in moral standards during and after the war years. The coming of age of juvenile delinquents de- developed during the war and the return of millions of persons to civilian status from the armed services. Now, J. Edgar Hoover, chief of the FBI reinforced the findings, stating that murders in America had increased an unprecedented 32% since the previous year. During the first 10 days of December 1945, Chicago reported 109 robberies, 265 burglaries, 109 stolen autos, and four rapes and eight murders. Just in 10 days of December. Sounds like my Christmas list. Hundred nine robberies <laughs> and a felon with some VD, <laughs> right? So to make matters worse, between June nineteen forty five and January nineteen forty six, three horrific murders were committed in Chicago. The murders were so barbaric in nature that many residents began to question the stability of mankind. After all, crimes like that weren't supposed to happen anywhere, let alone Chicago, right? Because it was still a Midwest town. Um, The first one was in June of 1945. Josephine Ross was a three-time divorced 
Hmm, Scott's wife. 43-year-old unemployed woman. Those are amateur numbers. (laughs) Who lived in a small apartment on Kenwood Avenue with her two daughters, Mary Jane and Jacqueline. Uh, Mary Jane. (laughs) Yeah. Their apartment was in the Chicago Northside District of Edgewood. The area boasted mom-and-pop markets along the Maid Road, street vendors... Vendor cars, electric street cars, mingling with pick, with white picket fences, um, lattice front porches, and bungalows. Now there were single there were single family housing dwellings Did as you well say as bungalows or jigaboos. Bungalows. Oh. Why would I say that second word? What word? The word you just said that I will not repeat. Oh, what word was that? I'm not going to repeat it. I just didn't know what you said. That's all. Anyway, it sounded different. Yeah, not talking about sticking a pumpkin up your butt, that's for sure. That was a good day. (laughs) People don't get our inside jokes, but yeah. (laughs) Now, there were single-family housing dwellings as well as two- to six-level apartments with their own unique entrance. Now, every backyard had their own tree. Most had their own fenced gardens. Each apartment had a wooden fire escape that overlooked an alley that helped divide each walk into nice cubicles. Now, space of the alleys were private garages that held at least one, if not two, vehicles. And especially since most households in 1946 could claim to own at least one automobile, if not two. Um, after Josephine had suffered multiple divorces, she mostly went to the movies, seeking the advice of fortune tellers and fighting the insurance company, claiming her most recent husband's policy wasn't valid. Which tells me, did he die? <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, her future looked dim at best. Therefore, she focused her attention on her new mate, a guy by the name of Oscar. However, what she didn't tell anyone is she actually had two men to choose from at that time. Was Oscar's last name the Grouch? No. I'm just asking. It for was a actually Nordmat Nordmark. I think I'd rather my last name be the Grouch. I think I would too. <laughs> or even De La Hoya sounds better than Nordmark. Yeah, that's god dang, that's rough, man. I know. I feel so, bad for him. That's, he, that should be considered a disability. <laughs> now, <laughs> on the morning of June fifth, nineteen forty-five, gonna make it over there? <laughs> no, nothing seemed out of the ordinary with the three ladies who lived at the apartment. Josephine had been to visit a fortune teller the day before, where. She, and she received a good reading. So she woke up early to talk to her daughters while they got ready for work. They left around 9 a.m. and she went back to bed. Now, when Jacqueline returned home on her lunch break at approximately 1.30 p.m. like she did every day. However, this time she knew something was wrong as soon as she walked through the door. The entire entire apartment was in disarray. There was a newspaper strewn across the floor. Drawers had been pulled out and rifled through. And chairs were knocked over. She felt a pit in her stomach as she ran toward her mother's room and flung the door open. She realized her fears were valid when she was met with a horrific scene. Josephine's lifeless body was laying across the bed. She had been stabbed in the throat multiple times and the killer had wrapped a dress around her head. The attack was so brutal, it caused blood to spatter all over the room. Oh, what an asshole. It's, yeah, it soaked the curtains, the walls, the furniture, and saturated the mattress. In the bathroom, just off the bedroom, a tub was filled with bloody water and several pieces of clothing, including Josephine's bras and panties. The only thing missing from the apartment was a few dollars in change. Wait a minute. 
So, like, no chicken legs or tea bags or nothing like that was no. missing? Remotes, no curling irons, nah, none. Okay, of that so yet. apparently he didn't have a remote controlled TV. Apparently, apparently they weren't of Russian descent. And uh, <laughs> he wasn't hungry, so we know that. Okay, those, those are clues. Those are clues. I'm following the clues because you know he wasn't thirsty. He didn't steal any tea, and he wasn't hungry. No, and only legs, stole right? change. And he only stole change. Mm-hmm. You know, real change begins with you. <laughs> Thank you. No, it doesn't. It starts with R. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're so retarded. I know. I told Todd my Wego joke yesterday. He, after I told it to him, it got really silent. I said, so is the silence because you didn't hear me or because you are not? You didn't think it was funny? He goes, that was lame. I said, I know. <laughs> but it's one of my good ones. <laughs> I got Jake with a good one yesterday. I'm trying to remember what the hell it was. Oh, I go, hey, Jake. He goes, what? I go. Did you hear about the kidnapping at the at the school? He goes, which one? The one right up the road, like right up our street. And he goes, no. He goes, what What happened? What's up with this? Oh, don't worry. He woke up. <laughs> don't worry. Kid's fine. Kid's fine. He woke up. <laughs> I'm going to spit out my coffee. Damn. So when- <laughs> I heard by your customers, you never spit. That'd be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> so when the authorities arrived, they couldn't find any fingerprints. Therefore, they didn't really have any suspects. At first, they thought Oscar Nordmark, her fiancé, was responsible. However, when they checked out his alibi, they found it to be airtight, so they quickly ruled him out. Now, law enforcement officials questioned others around the complex and discovered two people who may have witnessed the perpetrator. Elmer Nelson, the department custodian, said he saw a strange male with dark hair wearing dark pants and a white sweater weighing approximately 190 pounds wandering about the premises earlier that day. I can't figure out how people that are not cops figure out how much somebody weighs. Like, like this is for real. Except for, like, people who work in carnivals and stuff. Uh, oh, excuse me, sir, can you step on this well, scale for me? Oh, you're 190 no, pounds, I'll nice t- and healthy. I'll tell you what it is, though, because when I worked in uh, at the convenience store, they, they taught us, you know, because Every convenience store, I don't know if you've noticed, has that strip by the door that, uh-huh. you know, like like a tape measure. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm between 5'10 and 6'1". Yeah. Depending on what the, angle, right? The, yeah, depending on the freaking store I'm walking in. And yeah. Because <laughs> the store shrinks, not you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, apparently, I grow to 6'1 and then shrink back down to 5'10". But anyways, they taught us that based on that, people are certain weight. Usually, you know, basically, like, usually for a male 5'10", they usually weigh between 175 to 200 pounds normally. Oh, okay. So you can base that, it's like, okay, so he's a little bit heavier. So, you know, he's more towards the 200, a little bit over, you know. You just kind of estimate that way. So I look at me and go, damn, he was fat as fuck. And then when I worked reta- when I worked in intake in the jail, I, I could actually look at somebody and tell them exactly what their pant size was. And they go, how do you know? I go, because I'm not stupid. Because I can <laughs> see your meat curtains dragging the floor. And that ass is so damn wide, it barely fit through the door. You're a size 55. I was going to say, it was mostly the men that were kind of like amazed by how I could do it. <laughs> Did they look at you and go, oh, my God, nobody's <laughs> ever guessed that before. I feel special. Spank my butt, big no. mama. They, I, I had this one guy, every time he came in for new jeans, he'd go, I'm a 32, 32. I said, no, you're not. You're a 34, 30. And he goes, no, I'm a 32, 32. I said, okay. So I give him 32s. He goes, why are these so tight? So I give him the 34, 30s. He goes, these fit me perfectly. I said, told you. <laughs> it's like, don't argue with me. Cool. Guess what your new job is? What? Sitting out. 
clothes shopping for me. Oh, great. Why? Because I'm good at it? You, 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 did, you, you, you didn't put that on your resume, and now I know. And now, guess what? Great I've job. taken your son shoe shopping. Um, oh, yeah, I've yeah, never yeah. taken him clothes shopping because he is worse in a shoe store than any woman I know. He's worse in a fucking... God damn. I took him... Remember when I took him clothes shopping over at the fat guy store? Oh, yeah. I swear to fucking God. He's like, I don't know what I want. So I'm like, I'm picking him stuff. I'll go try this on, try this on, try this on. Yeah, that's what I would do with him, too. It's like, you know what? I don't care what you want anymore. <laughs> well, I kept him busy for 15 minutes so that way there I can do my shopping. Because I found some some clothes that right. that I liked a lot, a couple of shirts and things like that. Um, the only problem was finding my size because in the in the fat guy store, I'm a petite. I'm small. Well, because you're shorter. Honestly, that's what petite means. No, oh, well then I'm 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 thin compared to the rest. Of it. Like everybody else is wearing, like, hey, I need a size like five X. I'm like, can I get a two X? Or ooh, damn, what are you working out? Yeah, like, what's happening? Well, even that some of the employees are bigger guys there. Because I used to take my son there too before he lost all his weight. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, so but then they also talked to a lady by the name of Bernice Folkman. She was a resident in the apartment complex, and she said she saw a man in the building earlier that matched the same description Elmer gave, except for she said the man was more slender built and not as hefty. So eight weeks later, when the authorities still weren't able to track down a suspect, Captain Frank Reynolds announced the department was at a loss. They weren't able to determine the intruder's motive, and they didn't have any leads on a potential suspect. However, he said they would continue to investigate the crime. Despite his assurances, it wasn't long before the case faded to the background. Then six months later, it happens again, December that year. Francis Brown was a... Huh? Bastards. I know. Frances Brown was a 33-year-old petite, modest, shy brunette who had received an honorable discharge from the United States Navy. She lived in, an, in the Pinecrest apartment building, a short distance from where Josephine was murdered, and she and her roommate, Viola Butler, lived in apartment 611. So they were up on the sixth floor, and she was a very, very beautiful girl. Um, and she's older now, so why don't you give me her number? She's dead. Okay. <laughs> give me your number. I'll find out where she's buried. Sexy. So on December 10th, 1945, Viola had plans to spend the night over at a friend's house. So Frances planned on spending the evening alone in her apartment. She got home uh, at approximately 9.30 p.m. and the desk clerk told her that a man had been by earlier in the day asking about her. Now, when the man was told she was at home, he left. According to statements from the desk clerk, it appeared as if Frances had been expecting this visitor because she doesn't, wasn't surprised to find out a man was looking for her. But then, you know, most of us aren't. Francis was seen. You should be. Well, it's not a customer. <laughs> hate you. Francis was seen getting into the elevator to go to her apartment on the sixth floor. According to reports, she called her mother that night to say she would be home for Christmas. And there was also evidence that she had laid out her clothing for the next day and taken a shower before she went to bed. Now, this didn't seem out of the ordinary as it was a cold winter night, perfect for staying indoors. It sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. I know, it kind of does. Cold huh? dog winter night in Chicago. <laughs> right now, um, Richard Lindbergh, he's another author, describes Frances as this. she's a homespun girl from Richmond, Indiana. She attended business school, worked hard, and eventually landed a good job with oh god, with the A Big Dick Company. <laughs> when the war came. Wait, a minute. Wait, 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 do you work for them too, or is it just the dick? <laughs> 
hate you. All I know is I was you going know, down Sandy Boulevard and they had signs up saying, we miss you, Tammy, and we have coupons. <laughs> I hate you. A twofer. I really hate you because when I was talking to Todd last night, I said, you know, I often catch myself, even when I'm not speaking to, to Scott, that when I'm saying, I'll be like, Start reading something. I'm like, I don't even want to say that out loud because I know, I know where you're going to go. Now, when the war came, she enlisted in the Waves, which is the U.S. Women's Naval Reserve, and put her <laughs> office skills to good use as a tele- telegrapher. She spent three years in the service, then returned to her old job after the Japanese surrendered in August of that year. Now, the next morning, Martha Ingalls, a housemaid for the apartment complex, heard Francis's radio playing unusually loud at approximately 9 a.m. She also noticed the door of the apartment was slightly opened. Martha decided it was best to check things out, so she stuck her head in the, in, inside the unit, and she, shut up. she was <laughs> shocked to, to find Francis's bed saturated with blood and a blood trail going straight to the bathroom. In the bathroom, France was, was laid out over the tub. A butcher knife was sticking out of her neck, and she had a gunshot wound to the head. Jesus fucking Christ, and man. And the killer wrapped her head in a pair of pajamas. See a pattern? I Yeah. God, okay, I, all my jokes aside, man. Okay, look, I understand we deal with serial killers, but some of them, like that, that shit right there. Yeah. That's fucked the fuck up. Yeah, that's like overkill. Yeah, no shit. I, I would have expected she was raped and killed, which is gross, but okay. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not... No, man. Freaking, let's shoot her in the head, put a freaking butcher knife in her neck, wrap her head up in pajamas, lay her over the tub, drag her body from her bedroom yeah. to her to to her bathroom. Leave a room. knife in her throat. Yeah, yeah, leave a knife in her throat, make a sandwich and freaking <laughs> right? and barbecue something, call a few friends and God, what a dick. Yeah. What a fucking dick, man. Now, then just a month later, like actually it wasn't even a full month. Jim and Helen Degnan lived with their two young daughters, Betty and Suzanne, in the Edgewater district of Chicago on the first level of a large two-story turn-of-the-century house. Now, the Flynn family lived on the second level of the residence, and Jim was a blue-collar worker employed by the Office of Price Administration, which is originally a business. They were in Chicago. He was living in Baltimore, Maryland, but was transferred to the Chicago office, so he and his family moved to that new area. Now, typical of the era, despite the good job, Jim's salary barely allowed for them to make ends meet. However, he and his wife could still provide their children with a good Christmas. On January 6, 1946, was the last day of a winter break for the girls. The next day, they were scheduled to return to classes at Sacred Heart Academy. Therefore, the family made a fun day of it, and they didn't get back home until later that evening. Helen fed her daughter some sandwiches for dinner, and it was time for bed. They tucked Suzanne, their happy blonde six-year-old with pink cheeks, into bed, and that was the last time they ever saw her. That night, nothing out of the ordinary seemed to take place. Every once in a while, the Flynn's dog could be heard barking, but that was typical. Cecilia Flynn later said that she thought she heard some men out talking outside, and she thought one of them had said, this is the best-looking building around. But that also isn't unusual, you know, because they lived in Chicago in the city. So Helen Degnan said that she woke up at one point and sat up, which woke her husband, and she told him she thought she had was awoken by the sound of Suzanne crying. So they listened in the darkness for several minutes, and when they heard nothing else, they lay back down and went to sleep, right? Which is what parents would do, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I've done that with my kids many exactly. times. Exactly, especially when they're younger. You don't, like, run in there every time they whimper. Right, right. And like, uh, because, well, you, you do, 
during your first child. Yeah. But, but after you realize that sometimes it's just a dream and stuff like that, you know, and a, a, a little parenting tip for y'all that don't have kids and are going to have them. You're going to wake up. <laughs> you're going to hear your daughter. Or your son. Or your son. And they're whimpering. So you're going to go and want to rub their back. And you're going to go, hey, wake up. You know, it's okay because dad's here and I love you. And those little bastards will not go back to sleep for shit. Nope. And just, then they get used to that. Yeah. Just let them, just let, let it ride. Like seriously, unless they're screaming and having night terrors, let yeah. that shit just work itself Let out. them cry themselves asleep. It's okay. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't make an investment into that bullshit because then every night about like fucking midnight, one o'clock in the morning, when you just got home and you're still kind of drunk, you're going to hear that and you're going to be like, oh, fuck, here we go. Then they're <laughs> going to wind up in your damn bed and God forbid you try to take up any part of that king size bed because they're going to kick you. <laughs> they lay sideways and diagonal. <laughs> and upside down and on their yes. heads like goddamn bats and then pretty soon you've got a kid on top of your head. You're smothering while the dog is across your freaking chest and then they look at you like why are you so tired i slept fine well i bet you did you little asshole (laughs) the end that's true so then on january 7th the next morning jim went through his routine of getting his daughters out of bed so they could get ready for school now when he came to suzanne's room he noticed her door was shut which alarmed him because she was so afraid of the dark she never slept with her door shut so he slowly opened the door and her, found out her window was wide open and the room was empty. Now, it's in January. It's ice cold outside. He quickly alerted the rest of the family and they searched their entire premises. They looked in closets, under the window set, seen even the fire escape outside the windows. Then they were all out of the closet and fabulous. <laughs> so when they couldn't find her there, they went to the Flynn's unit upstairs and asked them to search their unit as well. It wasn't long before reality sunk in that their young daughter was nowhere to be found. So around the same time Suzanne vanished from her room, the Chicago Police Department was getting a lot of criticism from the public for the number of cases that remained unsolved. That, coupled with the fact that this case involved a child, the authorities aggressively pursued all the leads that came their way. Now, John C. Pendergrass, the department's new commissioner that I talked about, had it had and in uh, he was he was the new commissioner, excuse me, and in an unprecedented move, he took an active involvement in the investigation, which we all know police commissioners don't get involved in an active investigation, you know. Because they're like top echelon. They did the hiring and firing. That's about it. Right, right. You know. So once Suzanne's disappearance was reported, law enforcement officials swarmed the apartment. Dolores Kennedy said, described it as the Degnan apartment was immediately filled with police from the area, eager to resolve the disappearance of little Suzanne Degnan. When When they searched the girl's bedroom for clues, they picked up what they thought was an old tissue. However, on closer inspection, they realized it was a ransom note. They assumed the wind from the window blew the note to the floor, and therefore, that's why it wasn't discovered right away. Now, the n- ransom note itself said, get $20,000 ready, and, and white, it says white. They meant wait for word. I think they spelled it W-A-I-T, and that's why I have it wrong here. Let me fix that. Remember, boys and girls, when it's white, it's all right. Right. They wait for a word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. Then when they turned the note over, they found the following warning. Burn this for her safety. And safety spelled wrong. 
Um, so when detectives search around the outside perimeter of the building, they discover a ladder that had not that did not belong to the Degnan or Flynn families. They took it over to the side of the house where Suzanne's bedroom window was located and propped it against the building towards the window. The seven foot ladder came right to the edge of the windowsill. So therefore they assumed the kidnapper used that ladder to access the girl's window, right? Now they also when they canvassed the neighborhood um, they searched for more information, witnesses, and potential evidence. They came across something a few blocks away. According to employees of a local nursery, they recently had a ladder matching the description of the one found at the house stolen from their premises. I have a question. Was it a stepladder? No. Oh, because I have a stepladder. I never knew my real ladder. <laughs> I knew you were going to go somewhere stupid. Like, I can't even win with you. Anyways, then the department received a tip. Someone called the station asking to remain anonymous and told officers they should probably search for Suzanne in the neighborhood sewers. Okay? So later in the evening of January 7th, Detective Harry Benoit. Harry Benoit Benoit. Harry Harry Benoit Balls. (laughs) I know, right? And Detective Lee O'Rourke began combing the sewer drains around the yeah, Degnan neighborhood. That's a fucking Irish name if I ever heard uh, one. Damn, totally mix. I know. Irish coming over here stealing our jobs, fighting. Especially in Chicago. Drinking all of our booze. <laughs> yeah. Bastards. Damn people. So they were searching the drains and runoffs along Winthrop Avenue when they discovered the cover wasn't setting right on one of the drains. They aimed the beam of their flashlight. It was setting left. Shut up. Into the opening and saw what they assumed was a doll's head with blonde hair. However, upon closer inspection, they realized it wasn't the head wasn't from a doll. It was Suzanne. Benoit and O'Rourke immediately alerted the other officers in the area, and a blanket search was conducted. With the Wait a minute. Why search for blankets? They need to search for a suspect. Let's get it right, Chicago. Oh, my God. Why? Too early. I know. With the authorities putting a lot of manpower into, and I want to tell you this right now. When I did my grammar check, it actually wanted me to replace the word manpower. With what? With people power or woman power? Staff, labor. It's like, are you kidding me? Even autocorrects become an overly PC. Okay, here's the thing, boys and girls. Like, for real. Number one. Yeah. I want to start with people who call other people cis men and cis women. See, I don't understand that term, but whatever. Just call me a man. That means that, I think it means systemic, and that means you were born a male or a woman. Okay. How about just saying I'm a guy? How about that? Yeah? Would that work? Don't, you don't have to call me a cis anything. Fuck you. You know, uh, Jesus Christ, man. Let's, let's quit being so goddamn politically correct. Just be correct. Right. Dumbass. And I'm a woman and have never been in, in, ever offended by the whoa, word manpower. You're a woman? You're... Oh, well, I learned something. You want me to prove it? No, no, no. Then shut up. No, I do not. I don't need to see your freaking clam. I wouldn't show you that. Hey, look, I'm a fat guy. I've got boobs, so that doesn't prove anything. I've got (laughs) boobs and a dick, so... Well, I don't have a dick, so... (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so you say... Anyways, so anyways, when they put a lot of manpower into searching the other sewage drains in the neighborhood, it wasn't long before they found her torso and legs mixed in with garbage and debris of the neighborhood sewers. I mean, it was spread throughout. It wasn't just like her head was here, her torso and legs were over here. It's like her head was here, her torso was here, her severed legs were over there, and it took them several more weeks before they found her severed arms. What a freaking asshole, man. 
I so, need to get a cup of coffee. According Jeez. to reports, after law enforcement officials discovered her head in the sewage drain on Winthrop Avenue, they searched buildings around the area. In the basement of a nearby apartment building, they discovered a wash basin, and in the drain, they found torn pieces of flesh, strands of blonde hair, and human blood. Now, they believe her killer dismembered her body in, in what they began referring to as the murder room. Um, and that is actually going to be... I'm going to end part one there because then we're going to get into the investigation in the manhunt, which takes on a whole different aspect of things here. But I just, I think it's important that where we are with, because you can tell right now that the murder of the little girl is completely different from the other two, completely different, you know? So I think that that's going to come into play, but are you coming back now so you can sign us off? I am, because uh, I was going to say, usually when kids are murdered, um, it's predatory. Yes. Like, uh, it's, you know, it, it, and it's to know that that sexual was, in nature. To know that that was a child's room and everything before they even went into the house, that tells me that that family was being stalked. Oh, totally, man. Somewhere. Totally. You know, that the whoever took that child knew that family and their routine. How much more of this asshole do you I'm have that, going? Well, I have at least two more episodes. Oh, holy shit. Okay, I thought we were doing this all in one episode. I didn't even label this one or two or three or No, anything. I told you I had at least a two-parter, if not three. No, well, fuck my life. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your damn blogs at. You know, read something for a change, jackass. It helps with Alzheimer's. Fucking people, man. <laughs> Sitting there, goddamn kids playing their damn video games, not reading a damn thing. Getting all high on Mountain Dew and Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> Mentos and 7-Up. Goddamn little brats. Pop Rocks and Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> All right. Remember, we do have an Etsy account. What? What? How do they get a hold of our Etsy page? Uh, they can go on our Facebook page, and it's right there at the top. Just click on the we Etsy. We should be giving them a yeah. link or something in the bio of this episode. Oh, yeah. We can do that, too. It's probably a smarter thing. That's your new job. Go through all the episodes. Uh, anyway. Okay. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. And, you know, just interact with us. I'm not always an asshole. Yeah, I am. Yeah, he is. Anyways, this show is copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, thieving bastards. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, about fucking time. Over there, goddamn, I'm doing fucking gorilla shit or something. Sorry. I can probably do the next one. In, I can probably do it in one episode, the rest of it. No, great, great, great. Okay, I'm, we're, I'm, can I sign off now? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you did. Yeah, no. I was just making fun of you because <laughs> you're not telling our, our, our listeners goodbye. I said just, goodbye. Yeah, like really fucking, you know, whatever. Bye-bye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>